So um, I'm going to just try to touch real quickly. We are Matthew is where we are. And this morning I moved over. Uh, I, I didn't even read any of the genealogy from chapter one. And I made the recommendation that if you've never uh, read the, the study and the writings of uh, Sir Ivan Pannon, uh, he's a brilliant uh uh, scholar and mathematician, and he uh, is the one who went through and found numeric sequences throughout the scripture. Um, uh, you've heard me talk about uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and how every 50th letter spells out Torah, which is the word law, T-O-R-A-H, uh, and, you know, 50 is you know, really Pentecost is what you're looking at, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was it was Pannon that found those things and discovered those numeric sequences. Uh, he has just dozens in the New Testament that are like not his imagination. He's looking at uh, the Greek language and the original construct. And in particular, the first 17 verses are the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And uh, he noted that um, it's divisible by seven with no remainder repeatedly. So uh, the number of names divisible by seven, no remainder. Uh, the number of uh, masculine uh, divisible by seven, no remainder. The number of verbs divisible by seven, no remainder. The number of nouns divisible by seven, no remainder. The number of consonants divisible by seven, no remainder. The number of, uh, you know, Vowels divisible by seven, nor made over and over and over. The genealogy is only divisible by seven. It's, it's amazing what the Lord has constructed into it. So, uh, without you know going into that full explanation, I just encourage people to to take very seriously the fact that this book is written by God, not men. We are not capable. No human being, not even our machines are capable of, of recreating these things. This is something that is unearthly, supernatural in its construct. And then we moved into uh, the um, uh, announcement to uh, uh, particularly Joseph, in this case, uh, that he receives uh, this word from the Lord and is to name Jesus by the name of Jesus, which you know most of us are aware is Yeshua. It's the combination of Yahweh's salvation is uh, the compound word which forms the name uh, Jesus. And uh, I pointed out that by Joseph naming this child, uh, he was adopting the child. That's a cultural uh, element uh, that, you know, if a man uh, were to marry a woman who is already pregnant, then uh, if he were to choose not to take responsibility for the child, essentially saying this is someone else's child, and I don't want to take responsibility. She would, he would let the family or the wife name the child. He names the child, and he names the child Jesus as the Lord had told him to do. So there are some elements here that are quite interesting. And then, of course, the wise men in uh, chapter uh, 2, uh, and we talked about how they were probably king makers. We, we refer to them as wise men. We refer to them as often, you know, we three kings of Orient are. Um, they, they were probably king makers. Their information 
that caused them to understand what the star was and caused them to follow it probably came from Daniel. Daniel was taken into captivity. He was made the head over the, the king's eunuchs, Daniel chapter 1. The eunuchs become known in the book of Daniel as the Magi. Uh, that tradition continues. By the time you reach this phase of history, they are the ones who are invited very frequently to the inauguration of kings, where they are given a moment in the ceremony where they will read the genealogy and declare this is the proper you know, ascension to the throne. This person is the proper king. And uh, they had a great deal of authority. So tradition refers to them as kings, when in fact they were probably king makers. Very, very authoritative people. Mistakenly, we sometimes say that there were three of them. Uh, it may have been hundreds because they bore so much authority when they traveled to ceremonies that they often came with great security entourage because if you could kill them and manipulate their records, you could unseat the proper king. So, so they had a great deal of authority in the process. And that's part of the reason that Herod was so upset when they arrive and say, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? You've been appointed that throne by Rome, but there's one who was born to that throne. He was troubled, and it says all of Jerusalem with him. And then, of course, uh, his rage causes him to manipulate the situation and discover when the star appeared. And by that, he gauges how old Jesus would have been if he were still remaining in Bethlehem. He sends the Roman guards in, and they slaughter all the children, male children under two years of age. Now, he was known as a butcher. Uh, he killed thousands of Jews. Uh, <clears throat> I don't mean to downplay at all the number. Uh, he, at the time uh, that he was in Bethlehem killing those children, you're, you're looking at probably a maximum of 30 children. I mean, imagine 32-year-olds in your community being slaughtered. It, it would be so devastating. It would be unspeakable. Okay, But we shouldn't think of it as being tens of thousands or something of that nature. It was as horrific as you can possibly imagine, but um, he, it was sort of a strategic strike on his part to try and hit Jesus. Kill him. We talked about how corrupt he was. Uh, killed three of his sons, two of them uh, he, with, his, with his own hands. One of them he strangled to death. His history and Roman history tells us this. Third one, he actually had to get permission from Caesar to kill his own son because his son held a position in Roman authority, uh, all because of paranoia, tried to protect his throne, killed his own wife with his bare hands. Uh, he uh, later, um, because apparently, well, his mind was going, he was very sick, and he also was paranoid, and he was convinced that he kept seeing her, like, like her ghost, and then he fixated on a particular woman, and uh, he was intimate with her. Later, it was discovered that she was a prostitute, and she carried uh, sexually transmitted disease that he acquired uh, untreated. He got very sick, uh, so sick that he had a stench of putrefaction about him, where uh, the Roman guards, they actually had to formulate a thing where they couldn't get within 10 feet of him for the stench. And even then, they rotated the guards out of 
protecting him once an hour because they would get nauseated from being in this man's presence. Uh, that decay, internal decay, progressed to the point where uh, he eventually fell down and burst open and w was filled with worms when he died. So, I mean, I say all of that to, to really paint the picture, not just for... I mean, the grotesque effect is kind of, you know, cool, but it, it's not just that, okay? It's the fact that this is a vile man who, who's murderous, you know, killing his own family. He, he claimed to be Jewish of descent, uh, you know, labeled himself an Idumean. Um, he, he, as such, he refused to eat pork. Um, uh, he would make a big deal about not, you know, checking, is there any pork in this dish and go through all these things. Um, you know, trying, he'd eat other things that were unkosher, but made a big deal about pigs and staying away from any pork, you know, simultaneously strangling his family, uh, you know, really, really a psychopath uh, in the whole process of things, <clears throat> uh, you know, and, and uh, Caesar actually said of Herod that it was safer to be a pig in his household than to be his own son. So, um the threat against them um, is sort of where we are at. And, uh, and in verse 13, when they had departed, this is uh, speaking of the, the, the wise men were divinely warned in a dream that uh, they should not return to Herod and tell him where Jesus was. Uh, I should note that, you know, for those of us that weren't here this morning, uh, Jesus is very distinctly referred to as a young child. Uh, by Herod, and then also um, you see it again, uh, or in verse 8, it, it's referenced as the young child, and then again in verse 9, the wise man, young child. I made the point that, you know, we use terms that are similar. Uh, you know, you would never say of a toddler, uh, you know, isn't that a beautiful newborn? Okay, the, 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 the language is very specific. Jesus is probably a toddler. Um, you know, language and communication is starting to develop. Uh, motor skills of walking are starting to come into effect. Young child is not in the manger. The wise men don't show up in the manger. This is sometime later when they show up. Mary specifically lists here in those verses that Mary and Joseph are living in a house by this point, and they make the presentation of gold frankincense and myrrh, gold, the gift for a king, frankincense, uh, the gift for a priest, frankincense almost exclusively used in the priesthood for incense, and then myrrh, embalming uh, ointment, a uh, very strange gift to give a child. You know, if somebody comes to your uh, baby shower and presents you with a burial plot and a, you know, casket for your child, um, you're probably going to be offended. You know, um, here... Um, it has great value, and we know them to be a very impoverished young couple, okay? Teenage girl, pregnant, outside wedlock, Jewish community, so incredibly repulsed by that. Joseph is, he's a carpenter, and, you know, yeah, right, carpenters, feast or famine, you know, always the way it is, and so, uh, you know, you come to this place, and they receive these very valuable gifts that perhaps is how they sustain themselves for a period of time. You know, sell the gold, sell the frankincense, sell the myrrh, and uh, as we're going to see, head to Egypt at the moment. So 
the wise men have departed. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So uh, the death sentence upon the two-year-olds is about to fall in uh, Bethlehem, and the Lord is warning them to flee before this uh, takes place. I made the point this morning, uh, we, we think so highly of Mary, and we should. Um, and uh, in particular, there's something to note that one angel visited her and made the birth announcement. Uh, Joseph receives four visitations and messages from angels. Okay? So when it says he is a just man, uh, it's, it's saying that he's a deeply spiritual man. And so much so that when he at first thinks that Mary has somehow been adulterous in one way or another, and she's now pregnant, that he doesn't even want to spare his own pride. He's looking to quietly divorce her and separate himself from that situation. He doesn't want her to be shamed in the process. It's really quite a remarkable, selfless, godly, right? Uh, Proverbs telling us that love covers a multitude of sins. This man is very close to the Lord. And uh, these two people... Um, you know, are being used by the Lord uh, because of the proximity and relationship they are with him. Their, their ears are open. Their hearts are open. Uh, their behavior is cooperative with what the Lord wants to do. And uh, he reaches out and uses them in this situation. So, warn, flee, go to Egypt. Um, you know, I, I don't mean to read between the lines, but, you know, Egypt is not where you should go as a good Jewish person, right? Um, you know, that, that's the wrong, like, you know, honey, the Lord said it on my heart, we need to move to Las Vegas. Um, really? I don't think so. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, Joe, I, I have uh, heard from the Lord and I have uh, been caused to be pregnant by the Lord. Are you sure you're listening to the same God as me? You know, who knows if those types of discussions went on in the situation, but Joseph is hearing and what we see is obedience and compliance within this. So when he arose, he took the young child and his mother, meaning Mary, by night and departed for Egypt. Not easy to depart at night for these people, okay? <clears throat> Let alone cars with headlights. Uh, there's not even headlamps at this point. Um, this, this is like careful plotting and stubbing of toes is what's going on in this, this type of travel. And uh, it's needed in order for there to be a stealth. You don't even want people to know what direction did they go, right? Because the murderous intention will follow you. So they, they take this stealthful approach. And it was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. That's Hosea 11, verse 1. Um, if you were reading through Hosea, even as a New Testament Christian, you might not automatically recognize that as a prophecy of the coming Messiah. You definitely would not if you were hearing it from the Lord and writing it down. I often you know, have wondered and I've made mention in our Bible studies about how many times did these guys write something down and erase it and write it down and erase it before they finally like, okay, the Lord is definitely saying that to me. Uh, it's interesting. 
that you would write such a thing as this. And maybe they were just so close to the Lord that when the Lord spoke to them, they knew it was from the Lord and they wrote it down. But it's a remarkable prophecy regarding Jesus. It confuses right, everyone. So even the modern scholars are like, yep, he's going to come out of Bethlehem. Egypt, what are you talking about? Nazareth, how could that be? You know, there, there are things that don't align with the common interpretation of the scripture. Uh, but, you know, we are given the explanations in uh, the New Testament sense of things. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men. Now, I want to pause right here for a moment, okay? Um, <clears throat> Matthew, Levi, worked for the Roman government as a tax collector, okay? Often, in Matthew's gospel, you hear things that come from the Roman government that's spoken as first-hand knowledge, and if you've never noticed it before, right, read through and you've got to make some assumptions, safe assumptions, that he's still got connections inside Rome, right? You know, you get Pontius Pilate's wife saying, I've had a dream about this innocent man and don't you have anything to do with him? Wait a minute, Matthew's recording the dreams of the, the nation's lead. Wait a second, that's wild. Okay, so when we're hearing here things that come directly out of Roman court, it, it's probably safe to assume that it's because of Matthew's connection to the people that were on the inside. So, you know, something to think about in the whole process of thing. Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. That's very bad for everybody involved, right? He was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So when he inquired of them, when did the star appear? He leaned over to somebody in his council and said, write that date down. Or he made note of it himself. So when it comes time for this murderous intention, he says, I want you to go in. Imagine how that went down, right? You, you can sort of, you know, think that maybe they just showed up with swords drawn and started slaughtering kids. Did they have the audacity to send in some kind of census to inquire, uh, how many children in this community were born on this date or after? And, and uh, what are their names and what are their addresses? That's a sick thing to think about, right? This guy literally went into this community and specifically targeted all the children that were two years old and under. Horrendous, horrendous individual in all history. You know, mighty man as far as his construction and his feats politically, and, uh, you know, it's his, his ambitions in life, but really, really treacherous person, uh, considering how murderous and evil, vile he was. So, goes into the district from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, uh, saying, 
a voice was heard in Rama, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I can't even imagine uh, what that level of sorrow must have been like. I have been present in the passing of children, young children. And it, it has a level of heartbreak, as you, unfortunately, you may know. Imagine a whole community, the rage, the outrage. You know, when you're reading about <clears throat> the hateful, murderous intentions of Jews focused on Rome and their soldiers, and their, you get a picture as to why they were brutalized by this you know, political entity that has occupied their country. And part of that is contributes greatly to their desire to see Jesus be a conquering king. They want to come out from underneath this oppression. They want to be delivered from this. Now, I'll, I'll take a couple sidesteps onto rabbit trails here and make note that Roman guards asked Jesus, what should we do as believers, as those who would follow you? Jesus does not say, you need to repent, you filthy dogs, and resign from your position in the Roman army. You need to leave and become part of my kingdom and never pick up a sword again. He doesn't say any of that, right? He, he says to them that asked him in that moment, you need to be content with your pay and no longer extort people. Don't use your power and your influence to brutalize people. He doesn't say you are wicked for being part of that government and part of, of that nation and part of that political system. He doesn't say that at all, right? And doesn't he point out centurions along the way? Look at this guy. Look at this guy's faith. Look at this person. What a remarkable, we, we have the scriptures wholehearted intention. Uh, so keep in mind, right, that people in our government and people in our military are not serving a government that's anywhere near as wicked as this one, okay? Uh, people get the wrong impression. And then there's a lot of rhetoric going around inside Christianity that causes great division in our nation. And our enemy loves it, Right? He revels in it, in the church, encourages it, you know. Get this group that's a military family to feel ostracized by that group, which is, you know, against it, and this group, and that group, and that. Hey, guess what? We're all one family, man. We're all serving one king. It's possible, it's possible to be in this government and serve the Lord simultaneously. I've literally had Christians say there's no way it's not possible christians couldn't possibly no they really can they really can so so consider right you know as wicked as we see here we don't have jesus condemnation in any way right it comes down to individual behavior doesn't it, it comes down to what are you doing in your circumstances because let's face it right there are incredibly wicked chicken farmers we all going to hate chicken farmers now, right? There are incredibly wicked artists 
We're going to hate all artists now? We're going we're gonna to segregate into this group and that group and this group? Or are we going to understand that it's about obedience and submission to the, the authority of our Creator as our God and King? So great weeping, great lamentation. I'm sure none of us have ever even come close to experiencing you know, this level of communicative sorrow. You know, children slaughtered in such a way. The outrage that must be in place. Verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So he keeps getting dreams and he keeps getting messages. Saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. So he gets the all clear to head back to your you know, home country. So uh, he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. So they're back in their home country. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Again, a moment where if you're in this occurrence, you know, your husband, your wife seems to hear from the Lord, your friend, and they move forward. And as they're about to enter into the circumstance, they shift gears a little bit. And you're left thinking like, are you really hearing from the Lord or what? I mean, we were supposed to go back, but now we're supposed to almost go back. Like, what is going on here? Oh, there's a very clear, we're told, go back, all clear. It isn't just that he gets there and he hears Herod's son is on the throne and he makes a decision. I'm frightened. I'm going to turn aside and go to a different region inside our country. The fear hits his heart and then the confirmation comes from the dream. This man is hearing from the Lord. And, and we want to be careful about how we look at one another as we negotiate our way through circumstances that may be very complex. Hearing from the Lord in a dream and uh, going into the region of Galilee. Um, and dreams and interpretations of dreams. Uh, I've had dreams from the Lord. Um, I've had people interpret dreams from the Lord. Uh, I've also had people tell me they've had dreams from the Lord and I knew instantly it wasn't from the Lord. They weren't aware that it wasn't. You know, I think I've shared with you before this person that came and said, you know, God has spoken to me in a dream and we're going to move our whole families leaving the state. and We're going all the way across the country and we're going to be part of this other church and I'm going to become a very influential part of that ministry. And, 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 you know, specific timelines in one year we'll be doing this and one year we'll be doing that. And, uh, and I mean, as soon as they started speaking, I'm thinking you are literally off your rocker. I mean, that's going through my head. And I've had a whole bunch of confrontations prior to this with this person who believes that they're a prophet sent from God. And so they finish up and I'm literally thinking, I just want to tell them that they're crazy. But I'm trying to be polite. And unfortunately, they said, so what do you think? Have I heard from the Lord or am I crazy? <laughs> and I stammered for half a second and then said, no, you're crazy. And they were all offended. And I said, here's the thing. 
you've said a bunch of things like this all along the way, and they were all wrong. And now you've put very specific parameters around this and said, this is going to happen inside this specific timeline, and these doors are going to open, and we are going to go, and this is going to happen. And you said, I'm going to become a very influential part of that ministry. You put all these parameters on it. So here's the deal. If one year from now, none of this has happened, we'll know I'm right and you're wrong. If, if in one year all of this has happened, we'll know I'm wrong and you're right. Guess what? They still live in the community. And that was 15 years ago. Nothing happened. We shouldn't, we shouldn't get caught up inappropriately with this whole thing of desiring dreams and wanting to have supernatural. Look, if this stuff happens, usually it's quite obvious. Uh, but sometimes people are just so desirous of these things, uh, you know, that they create self-fulfilling prophecies. In the circumstances, it's a dangerous business. If the Lord's speaking, well, then it's really amazing. Verse 23, he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And uh, there are many uh, references to that all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and and uh, you get a generic sense of, of those that follow the Lord, right? Because what's the, um, uh, you know, the requirements of the Nazarite? Uh, no rot, no razor, right? And no raisin. So that might help you remember it, right? Rot, razor, raisin. So decomposing dead body, don't touch anything that's dead. Uh, so the rot, the razor, never get a haircut, right? Uh, the raisin, the grape, the grape leaf, the vine, the wine, all off limits, right, for the Nazarite. So the rock, the razor, the raisin. Um, here uh, you had Samson, right, <clears throat> who violated all of those points, by the way. And the razor was the last, right, that took not, not uh, his strength away. It did, but... It took not his strength away. It took God's spirit away. Okay. He, he's probing, right? He's probing. I kill a lion. And I go back and I get inside the dead lion's carcass. And I get the honey out and I eat of it. So I'm even consuming from the rot. And I give it to my loved ones. <clears throat> and then the drink and the raisin. And he's getting away with it, man. <clears throat> Nothing's happening. Right up until the haircut. And, and doesn't he push the line there? Right? Tie me up in green ropes. Nothing on high, yo. She ties him up in green new ropes. Well, what do you think's coming, man? You know? If every suggestion you make, she does. You know she's going to cut your hair. He's convinced he's not going to lose his strength. He's convinced himself that his strength is his own. And it's not. Okay. So you have those applications from the Old Testament referring to those that serve the Lord with the Nazarite vow, but very specifically, it's a foreshadowing to Jesus, who obediently is following, and most significantly as far as the vow goes, right? Because he's from Nazareth, 
more specifically in regard to the vow, because Jesus doesn't hold to the Nazarite vow. John the Baptist does. And he's the precursor that comes and declares, make straight the way of the Lord, as we're going to see here in the next verse. So he's in Nazareth, and it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene, right? And remember, Philip, right, makes that statement as he's being invited to meet Jesus. And he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, that's twofold, just for information's sake. Uh, one, it seems that Philip is saying more significantly, I have studied the scripture and I don't find any place that tells me that a prophet is going to come out of Nazareth specifically. Okay, so so he's, he's missing uh, key portions of scripture. But but in his mind, right, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, sure, Nazareth. Okay, and by then, uh, Nazareth is like to be a Galilean. Remember, they, they were like saying that about Peter as like an accusation. Like you're a Galilean too. I can tell by your your hick accent. <laughs> you're, you're from you know you're from the woods. You know is is what he, what they're saying to uh, Peter. You know you got a down east accent. I know you know they they they've got him pegged for who he is. But Nazareth was even shunned by the people of Galilee. So so it it was. Uh, you know, particularly hedonistic. Roman guards loved to be stationed there. You know, if, if they were going to get time off leave, they, they would request, can I, can I finish, you know, my duty over there in Nazareth? Why? It was nightlife. It was bars. It was drunkenness. It was prostitution. It was gambling. It was fighting. It was, you know, everything that they wanted as brutal soldiers. And, and so this idea of Nazareth, it's just, you know, it's literally we're back to Las Vegas, right? You know, God's chosen man has come from, you know, Sunset Strip. <laughs> People are like, you, are you kidding? That, that can't be right uh, in this situation. So he's, he's now in Nazareth. Uh, if you've studied it right, Capernaum does become his center of ministry, but that's actually Peter's home uh, that's, that he's living in. And interestingly enough, if you get the opportunity to go, to Israel, um, they're fairly sure that they've found the home that Peter lived in with his wife and his stepmother and Jesus. And, and we, we like I was part of the archaeological dig, they, they have found uh, Roman records of taxation and uh, they taxed homes. Uh, you could have a massive home and have really low taxes if one person lived in the home because they taxed you according to the number of occupants, okay? So if you had a little tiny home and had 12 people living in it, your taxes would be much higher than the very wealthy person who lived next door and only had two people living there, okay? I make the point because they have the records of Simon living, the Roman records of Simon living in this house with his mother and uh, or with his wife and his mother-in-law. And then later, the tax records include that a Jewish rabbi came and lived there as a tenant, with a, not an owner, but a tenant living with them. So uh, church history, not legend or myth, 
church history had it that this home was in fact Peter's home. And uh, another element that's really interesting is there's all kinds of what then would have been ornate Christian graffiti inside the home. You got to understand how peculiar that is in a profoundly Jewish community, right? The ichthus, the fish drawn on the wall, right? Uh, you know, uh, crosses as symbols. They they even had the the cross descending uh, or the menorah descending into the cross uh, over the ichthus, the fish, one of the earliest Christian symbols, all on the walls of this home. So that led them to think, and then they found the taxation records and. Now, uh, the Roman Catholic institution has built this monstrosity of a spaceship-looking thing over the top of it. That's just, it's ridiculous. So, you know, people go there to have communion, you know, over the house of Peter. So, you know, the first pope, supposedly, but anyway, it's just foolishness. Anyway, uh, in Nazareth, later, uh, his center of ministry Capernaum, you'll often hear the scriptures referring to, and he went to his home, and it's, it's meaning Capernaum. So now we shift verse 1 of chapter 3. In those days, uh, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, we have that uh, referenced in Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, uh, saying, Repent, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And I'll run over the details again. Um, John's parents, uh, very elderly, when uh, Elizabeth became pregnant. And uh, so uh, very likely that they passed away while John was still very young. Um, remember that his father was a Levite and was actually serving in the temple when the angel came and spoke to him and promised him of the coming of his son, the pregnancy of his wife Elizabeth. <clears throat> John does not join the priesthood, right? He emerges out of the wilderness. There was a group near the Jordan, in the wilderness where John was, that were known as the Essenes. Most of the Essenes, if not all of them, depending on whose history you listen to, were Levites themselves. And they were so offended by the sin and the corruption of the priesthood of that day that they renounced their positions as Levites, which was big, right? Because the Levites were to be given homes, and they had common land, and they were to be taken care of, and they rejected all of that. And they went and lived in the wilderness, and they had some common things about their behavior. They often had a diet of locust and honey. They almost always dressed in camel's hair, which was a prophet's clothing of repentance. And they wore a leather belt, and guess what their message was? Repent. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven. It's very possible. There's no way to confirm it, okay? But it's very possible that at a young age, right? Because John was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, okay? So you got to assume 
But this was a fiery young boy who, who had a great intent. And, and his dad wasn't completely dialed in, right? Because, you know, Gabriel tells him that your wife's going to have a child, and, and he says in a, a rebuking, doubting way, how in the world could that happen? You know, she's 80 at that point, and, and his tone is mocking, and that's why the angel says, and you won't speak until he arrives. You know, so he becomes a mute in the moment. So whatever, I think, whatever amount of wishy-washiness there was in, uh, you know, his dad, that by the time that boy was born, he was instilling the fire of God in his bones. He passes away in all likelihood. And young John, I suspect, joined the Essenes. Or if nothing else, even if he didn't go live with them, there seems to be that he adopts their behavior. right? So maybe he at best had an admiration of them and adopted mentality and behavior. My suspicion is he actually lived amongst them. He emerges into the wilderness. Wrong place to build your church, right? You know, how many of you guys have ever been to the Golden Road? Millinocket, right? I mean, you can get lost out there, right? That's the wilderness. Uh, The Allagash Waterway, right? I mean, just, you're out there. That's the same thing. John builds his church in a place where, like, no one goes there. This is not, this is... This is more than off the beaten path, right? If you're if you're getting, you know, the promotional packages from the church growth movement, uh, this is everything not to do right here. Okay, he's he's not dressing right, he's not talking right. His message is completely contrary to what they insist you should do. He's located his church in the wrong place. He doesn't even have polite greeters, right, to help the people ease into. You know, being a member of the church, right? They show up, and he says, "Who's who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, you brood of vipers?" You know, just that's always you know that's a way to win friends and influence people, right? So here he is, uh, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Common mentality uh, from the Roman Empire: uh, if a leader of the politics of the day, a governor, a a senator was going to come and take up residence, right, of authoritative positions. Suddenly, uh, you know, how to word it, you know, somebody's going to build their palace home in your community. Somebody's going to establish a Roman headquarter in your town. Well, the goat path you've been using to get in and out of town for two centuries, uh, that's not going to be there anymore. Rome comes in and they grade everything down and they bring in fill and they elevate and they pave with cobble and they build a flat road for the king to take his position, for the governor to take his position of authority, right? Whatever road leads, you know, from the highway that comes into your town is going to lead right to the front door of his place of business. And if you attach other roads to that, great. But that road, so he can get to town and conduct business, is going to be flat and smooth and easily traveled. That's what John is saying. The king of all creation is at hand. And it's time to make straight the way of the Lord. You know, the deep, dark places of your life, 
that are sinful and don't belong to the Lord need to be filled in and paved over. And those things that are way too high and difficult to transverse, they need to be cut down and torn down and excavated and maybe even fill in the hole <laughs> with that and then pave it and it needs to be smooth. You know, we see the cobbles, you know, thousands of years later and you think I wouldn't want to ride anything over that. Oh, they were smooth roads, smooth stone and pavement when the Romans got done with them. You're looking at thousands of years of deterioration on those roads today. The Romans wanted it to be safe, easy, fluid travel for those that work in the leadership. And that's what John is saying. You know what it means to be in a community where Rome puts a position of authority in your town and they make straight the way? You make straight the way of the Lord. So that the king can come and take his rightful place in your heart. So that he can rule where he's supposed to rule, right? You get all the way forward to Jesus' ministry and they're saying, do we pay taxes or not? And he, he, had, he doesn't even have a coin. He has to say, show me a denarius and whose image is this? And well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. More significantly, render to God the things that are God's, right? Whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Whose image is on you? We were created in the image of God. The image that we bear, we are to render back to the one who gave us this image. The one who gave us this conscience, who gave us this life. It belongs to the Lord. So coins, you know, unless you start minting your own coins, um, you know, you should be paying your taxes to Caesar and, and, and you know, to the United States government. And, if if you aren't, and more significantly, are you rendering to God that which is God's? Right? It's our, our whole life belongs to him. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I don't know why people want to change the scripture, and they do this thing, you know, where, no, it's not actually talking about, you know, locusts, it actually, it's, it's the term which we could translate as carob. You know, it's the carob pod is what we're talking about. No, it's locust. It, it, is, it is the big grasshopper is what we're talking about. And if that confuses you, uh, go back to Leviticus and see the Lord give great explanation about how you can eat locusts and you can eat grasshoppers, right? And those things are kosher. Part of the reason that they're kosher is because they don't feed on anything that's dangerous to you. Vegetation is their food source. Most countries around the world, you can buy grasshoppers and locusts dried in bulk. Like a pound of grasshoppers. You're thinking like, what would I ever do? Stir fry is the most common thing. Okay, It's an excellent protein source. Okay, And it's weird because it's vegetarian and protein. You can order right now, go home, look it up, grasshopper flour. Okay? And it is. Tens of thousands of grasshoppers, raised sometimes, grown, captured, right? Dried, their lifespan's relatively short, dried, and then ground. And while we're thinking, gross, again, it's mostly vegetation. There's very little else to it. So he's taking in vegetation, 
He's taking in a, a good protein source and honey. So he's getting the glucose. Uh, how does God work that out? It's his diet. Take it up with God, you don't like it. Uh, it's so strange that people try to manipulate any portion of the scripture that they don't care for. I just think that's gross. Yeah, it's gross. Like, what do you want to say about it? It's gross, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you, you probably, you know, get to the point with that sort of diet where it's like, you know, you just a little Vienna sausage, uh, you know, grasshopper thing going on. Just crunchy anyway. So his diet is locust and honey uh, here in verse five. Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around Jordan went out to him. He has a massive revival going on. Why does he have a revival going on? It's not his method. It's not his method, right? We do that, right? We have a church revival. You know, we've talked to the farmer. We've leased his field. We've rented a tent. You know, we had the bush hog in. We got a whole bunch of parking and we've hired a special band and we're going to have a revival. Probably not is, is what I've got to say. Okay. Um, uh, J. Edwin Orr, might want to remember that, J. Edwin Orr, yeah, I think it's O-R-R, -R. Uh, he was a scholar, uh, passed away in the early 80s. Uh, he did an exhaustive study of uh, revivals, and uh, he, he started out like most of us, plowing into the subject, uh, thinking like the big tent and the revival, and he quickly realized that our definitions were wrong, uh, that there are actually three things that the church always labels as revival. Okay, uh, The first one is what we would call genuine revival. And don't get ahead of yourself. Uh, revival only happens to the church. Right? To revive something is to awaken what has fallen asleep, or restore life to that which has died. Revival. So revival happens to the church. Okay. Uh, there is awakening, right? When a community or a group of people have never known the Lord and they suddenly, spontaneously start having a desire to know the things of the Lord. And keep this in mind. All three of what I'm going to describe sometimes happen together, but that's incredibly rare. Okay? Very often what we're praying for is awakening. We're saying, Lord, bring revival. <clears throat> okay, yeah, the church needs that. I'll agree with that concept, okay? But what we really want is the awakening of the community. We want people who've never known the Lord to come to the Lord, to wake up to their need for God. The last thing that happens is outpouring. Acts chapter 2 baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? And that results in any number of things. The church can be revived, the community can be awakened, or you'll have all kinds of things happening in any of those regards, evangelism, you know, awakening, revival that are happening that is just from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So, so, so you know, when we're hearing this message of repentance and the need for revival, how all of Judea, here's, here's the bottom line, we're never in charge of any of it, <laughs> right? We're, we're the tail trying to wag the dog, man. Do you recognize the need for revival? You know where to start? Obviously, right? Your own heart. It's got to happen in us first. 
So when you see this here, and people are often like, what we need is revival. Well, stop talking about anybody else. Just get on your face. Are you doing that every day? You're getting up in the morning and you're just dying, you know, alone with the Lord and then starting your day from that position. Uh, that'll lead to personal revival. Anyway, big movement, not because of method. It isn't anything John has for formulated here at all. And people have tried to do this too. I, I know I'm just sort of railing on these different subject matters, but people have tried to do the opposite. Oh, okay, we're not going to do church growth movement. We're not going to have coffee shop. We're not going to do anything cool. We're going to go build a, a church out in the wilderness. And then those ones fail. Why? Because it's another plan orchestrated by men. Okay? You want the Lord's power working in your life, in your ministry, in your circumstances? Then inquire to the source of those things, right? Ask the Lord to do those things. And continue to be faithful in whatever he's called you to do. So all Jerusalem, Judea, I'm just going to go a little bit further, you guys. All the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, I've been to the Jordan. It's not picturesque. It's pretty muddy. Um, there are some pretty big fish in there. Um, you know, uh, women often get in and want to get out just as quickly as they got in. It isn't, again, the sort of thing like, People went out there and it was just an oasis of beauty that caused them to just give over to the Everybody else was being baptized, so they got baptized. No, you, I mean, when you're staring at the Jordan, it's literally like, I don't know, how serious am I? You know what I'm saying? I just, may, maybe not. I've, I've never been baptized in chocolate milk before. Um, you know, that's literally the look of, of, of the experience. So, um, you know, you shouldn't ever assign to these things humanistic sort of success thought. This is the Spirit of God convicting these people and bringing them to a very remote location as they confess their sins openly, publicly, and they're baptized to symbolize an end of the old, a washing away of the sin and the death and a, and a resurrection into a newness of life. And they're departing from the old and walking into the new. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, you venomous snakes. You know, this brood of vipers is like even a little tame. It's it just, you know, sort of poetic. Brood of vipers, you venomous snakes. You know, you, you, he's a poison. He's just calling them deadly. He's referring to them in, in the most derogatory uh, of ways in this uh, setting. So a brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He's saying this to them because he knows they're not there repentant to go through the process. They're there just to see what's going on. They just want to know, what is this about? They're... Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. So now I'll dwell on repentance for just a moment. Turn around, go the opposite direction. Repentance is not sorrow. Repentance is not regret. Repentance is not tears. Repentance is not convulsive crying. Repentance is complete opposite behavior of what the behavior previously was. 
You were selfish and sinful and self-centered and destructive. And you turn around and serve others and selflessly exert yourself to care for and do for and stop all the other. Repentance is the action. There may not be any tears. None. The behavior is completely opposite. It starts actually by definition in the mind, metanoia, the changing of the mind. The mind change. How many times have you sat with people who live in sin and you pleaded with them to stop? And they, they recognize everything you're saying. I can't believe it. I hate myself. I'm overwhelmed. And they cry and they convulse and they walk away and they do the exact same thing. All of the expressed sorrow is not repentance at all. None at all. It's just that. It's just sorrow. It's just regret. That's all it is. Repentance. Bring forth the fruit of repentance. Turn around. Go the opposite direction. John's rebuking them for it. And do, do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And it's questionable what he meant by the stones. You know, uh, some insist that, you know, Roman soldiers were often referred to as rocks or boulders or stones. And, uh, you know, oh, he may have been referring to them. I think he was referring to stones. Okay. But he might have been referring to soldiers. Okay, I'll give you that. I'm not going to make a big argument about it. But it's the idea of the impossible happening. You know, God could change these stinking, rotten, Gentile Roman soldiers into believers. You know, don't say to yourself, or children of Abraham, these guys could be children of Abraham. Or those rocks right there on the ground could be children of Abraham. Uh, the Lord can perform the miracles. Don't think to say to yourself, my parents were Christians. I've been raised in the church. I have a certificate of baptism. Don't think to say to yourself those things. Your life has to be reflective of the confession of your mouth. It has to be. And I, I was raised in Baptist churches where all, you know, I know there are good Baptist churches. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Wonderful Baptist churches filled with the Spirit of God, serving the Lord. Wonderful denominations and, and churches. I was raised in churches where all they wanted to do was get you to the prayer and get you to the baptism. And once you did that, they didn't really even care. They really did not care what went on in your life after that. I, I literally had some of the deacons like saying to me, but yeah, you you were, I mean, you were baptized, right? Yeah, I'm currently a drug dealer, but yeah, yeah, you're right, I was. You know, so that I mean well, yeah, just well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that stuff's gonna get straightened out your right. Yeah, I mean that's like a really lame way of looking at it. You know, my behavior wasn't matching any of what I confessed as my belief. So he then says, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. Others say not worthy to untie, which is more accurate. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable 
fire. So we'll stop right there and I'll just give us a little explanation of that tail end. I know we're running late. Axe laid to the root of the tree. No fruit here. So this thing is just taking up space in the, in the orchard. You know, it's sucking up nutrient from the ground. It's using up sunlight. Oh, you put something else here and gain fruit from don't really have a lot of use for firewood or building material. So we might as well just cut this down. That's what he's saying to these who are the brood of vipers and the fruitless religious people. God's already put the axe to the root of the tree. He's ready to just cut this thing down and be done with it. The winnowing fan uh, that he's speaking of, they would take this, particularly the wheat, gather it all in, and then beat it or run it over with a stone wheel. It would crush the grain out of the pods on the heads of the stalks that the grain kernel is small and heavy. They take a winnowing fan, wood, big wooden pitchfork, stick it in the pile that they've already crushed out and throw it up in the air, usually on a hilltop where there was a breeze and it would blow the chaff off to the side and the wheat kernel would fall right back down to the ground. Um, sometimes they use big fans and they would fan braided palm fans and they would uh, blow the chaff as they did the same thing. But blow the chaff off from the fruit. Get the seed, get the fruit, and then just burn the chaff. It's just taking up space. Again, he's putting them in that label. Whose sandal I am not worthy to unlatch or loose or untie. That was a common phrase in the schools of the rabbis where they said, you must do whatever your rabbi asks you except for untying his sandals. And that's an encapsulating phrase that was saying to the students, and to the rabbis, you can't abuse your students, right? You can untie your own sandal, pal, right? If you want him to answer biblical questions, do a test, write a paper, you can put a lot of burden on your students as far as their learning process, but you can't turn them into your own slave. John is saying it would be appropriate for me to be his slave. You guys have a common statement that the rabbis can't make us untie their sandals. I'm telling you, if this guy wanted me to untie his sandals, it would be appropriate. He is my master. I am his servant. This is what we're being called to. Uh, I think that, you know, for us at Christmas, that's a very important place to stop, is to understand that there is, you know, a lot of frilly junk that goes on about baby Jesus. Well, he's the king of all glory, and he sacrificed his life for our lives. The greatest gift ever given to any human being, eternal life from the one innocent life that ever existed. It needs to be honored by us. I'm very, very grateful to live in a nation where we're able to still honor and worship. And I know for us, at our house, there are gifts, there is a tree, uh, but the day is about Jesus Christ. And I mean that very thoroughly. In our home, it has always been 
very thoroughly about Jesus Christ. Reading the word, being in prayer, being in fellowship, sharing meals, caring for those in need. Christ has gifted us and we try to make sure that he is the center of honor. So this life right here given to us, we're not even worthy to untie his sandals. If he asks us, then we should obediently say yes, sir. Amen? Well, that's more than the time we had. So why don't we stand and we'll pray.